0: How y'all doing today? Come on, you glad you came today. It is Time Change Sunday. Every pastor freaks out on Time Change Sunday. So thank you guys for being here today. Who woke up like freaked out? This is a later service, so you guys are probably not worried at all. But for those of us that get up at 6 a.m. on a Sunday, it was uh, all night, you know, when you're going to miss it, like that feeling you're going to miss something. So you keep waking up every hour like, is it time? Is it time? You don't trust Apple to advance the clocks. You don't trust Androids because they're Androids, you know what I'm saying? Welcome to Life Point Church, everybody. <laughs> My name is Mike Burnett, and Stephanie and I are so honored to serve as your pastors, and our whole team is here honored to serve you. I want to say welcome to all of our first-time guests and as well as everybody who's joining us online through our online campus. We love you guys at Austin P. and in Chandler, Arizona. We're so blessed to be one church in many places, and thank you if this is your first time, like Pastor Christian said earlier, if you would scan that QR code you saw earlier and just connect with us, we want to send you just some simple next steps for you and your family, and we always believe as Christians we're on... We're on just a journey with the Lord and growing. Hey, today I want to give a shout out to our dream team. I just want to say thank you to our dream team who serve here faithfully. We've got Easter coming up, which is always a big day. We're adding a 6 a.m. service, which we've done for the last couple of years, and it's always full, which is fun. Uh, we also have these invite cards for you to invite your friends and family, neighbors, coworkers, even your enemies to church. Come on, how many of you know? If you hate somebody, bring them to Jesus. God may change your heart. Uh, But invite them to a different service time, whatever. But here's all the service times. And we do ask that everyone please RSVP. It's not, we're not going to turn anybody away. We just need to manage uh, the seats. We're limited with how many people can fit in the room at each location. And so we're trying to manage that as best we can. So we're offering six services at this location, including a Saturday night for our Dream Team and then uh, at Austin P and our other locations as well. But if you would please go online and RSVP and then grab a stack of our invite cards on your way out and invite your friends that's for you, to uh, come to church on Easter. Shout out to our Dream Team and thanks so much for serving here. We have a, a really gracious team gets here early. We've got production folks that are here as early as 545 every Sunday, and they serve all day long. But I want to give a special shout out to our parking lot team. Uh, you guys crush it. You're the first face of our church, for, especially for new folks that come here. And I just want to say thank you for getting out there and serving, whether it's in the heat or the freezing cold or the rain. And to our church, I want to say thank you for being kind to our parking lot team. Please be kind. When they're like, hey, come this way and you go that way, that's not kind. You know what I'm saying? Like they're here to serve you. I just want to, anyway, thank you so much uh, for, for serving to our parking lot team. Uh, as a church, you guys continue to, to stay faithful in your giving and generosity, and I just want to tell you where your giving is make a difference, making a difference specifically as it relates to what's happening in Europe right now, in Poland, in Ukraine, in uh, other countries there. And we should be praying every day about what's happening there, and regularly, multiple times a day. But uh, let me tell you what we're doing in just a moment. But how we do it is through your giving and generosity. We have not been able to caravan over to Europe, you know, to spend time out there ourselves, but. Through your giving, you're keeping missionaries and church planners and ministries active on the ground every single day. And we're a church that believes in and practices tithing. Now, if you're not familiar with tithing, tithing is when we bring the first tenth of our income back to the Lord as a thank you. It's not a tax. It's not a bill. It's not something you have to do. It's a a posture of, I get to bring this back to the Lord as a thank you for what he's done in my life. And the reality is the plan of God is that God's people provide for the house of God. We plan, we provide for ministry through a tithe. Everyone does that portion. And that allows us to plant new churches, raise up, develop ministers, start missions, works, and do works of compassion and mercy, feed the hungry, the poor, et cetera. It was never the plan of God that the government do all these works of compassion. It's the church that cares. And the way that we do that, uh, one of the ways that we do that, obviously through activity, but also through generosity. I like to look at tithing, it's a, it's a, a discipline for the Christian and I'm gonna encourage every one of you to practice this discipline. But one of the reasons we don't, uh, A, many of us are just not in a financial position, we, we don't budget ourselves well, or we have not planned to become tithers, or we've extended ourselves into so much debt that we literally can't afford to. So I want to, we want to help you with that. We want to help you get out of debt. We have Ramsey Solutions available to anybody that wants it. It's our gift to you, and we want to help you get out of debt, get on a plan, get on a budget, and get financially free. But the other reason a lot of people don't uh, tithe or give is fear or control. They're they're nervous that God will take care of their needs or they figure I can manage my own life and budget best. But tithing is the only place in the scripture that God says, you test me. Otherwise we're told never test God, never test the Lord. In fact, Jesus said that to, to the devil when he was tempted. He said, don't ever test God. But God says, test me in this area of tithing. And here's the test. If you'll put God's house first, God will take care of your house. That's what he says. If you'll bring the tithe to the storehouse, your church. And some people say, well, I tithe to all these different organizations. No, no, no. The tithe goes to your church. And you can give offerings to all that. I encourage that. But you tithe to your church and God says, and I'll take care of your your house. So he says, bring the tithe and see if I don't take care of all the needs of your house. So test God. Every time you give a tithe, if you do it digitally and you hit the send button, just do it with some attitude. Go, boom, take care of my bills, Jesus. You know what I'm saying? Like, just say it. Because he said, I'll take care of this. But I want to encourage you uh, to practice it in your family. But let me tell you, as a church family, we practice tithing as well corporately. Life Point Church is a tithing church. Everything you give, we give 10% of that away to plant churches, help missions. But particularly, I want you to know that a, a portion of your giving is going to help in Ukraine, in Poland, in Moldova. Uh, we are partnered, as you know, with Convoy of Hope, who is an amazing partner doing work all around the world. But uh, with Convoy of Hope, we're helping refugees from Ukraine, get into Poland, Moldova, other nations around, and we're providing food, supplies, temporary housing, clothing, and partnership for the gospel. Also with YWAM, Youth with a Mission, one of our ministry partners, they are shuttling literally thousands of Ukrainians out of the country to neighboring countries as refugees. And while the YWAM drivers are driving them, they're sharing the gospel. And literally they're reporting that thousands of Ukrainians are committing to Jesus, are finding hope and peace in their faith in Jesus Christ. And we're able to contribute money and resources and food and shelter and clothing. And so your giving is doing that. You, we may not be able to load up a plane and go there, but every time you give, your giving is extended there. Can I hear an amen? We're also hearing reports that are not making international news, but let me tell you, because the church news is always better news anyway, right? Ukrainian Christians are being seen all over the place kneeling, laying hands on Russian tanks and vehicles, literally witnessing and praying and preaching the gospel even to the Russian soldiers. And there are reports in the church in Ukraine that many Russian soldiers have repented and surrendered their lives to Jesus and left the war out of surrender to Christ. Praise God. I'm telling you, the church is the hope of the world. it is the hope of the world. I want to thank you for giving. There's more of that uh, that needs to happen. Also, we gave to help with tornado victims uh, in December and January. And I just wanted to show you where we were able to pay cash for some temporary housing uh, this last two weeks for families. We had five families in Dawson Springs, Kentucky that are still homeless. And I don't know if they were either just staying with friends or living in uh, temporary shelters, but you guys provided these houses. These are called uh, Villages of Hope. I just want you to check out how bougie these little spots are. First of all, these are really nice. Go on the inside. These are Conex container homes, all brand new, all paid for with cash that you guys gave. So, so thank you to provide for these families. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This is temporary, obviously. Some of you are looking at them like, I'd rather live there too, actually. <laughs> Turn with me to Acts chapter 12. We're going to continue our Acts series and I've titled the message today, When God Allows the Mighty to Fall. We're coming to the end of Acts 12. It's a, it's a passage that you would probably just skim over quickly. But honestly, it has a lot of rich meaning that I think we need to spend some time in. It's the very last paragraph transitioning us to Acts chapter 13 when Barnabas and Saul begin their traveling ministry. But we're gonna finish Acts 12 looking at the death of King Herod. King Herod is the king of Judea, and uh, we're gonna look at his death. It's a unique moment in the history of the church, not just that the king dies, but how he dies and why he dies and what that has to do with us. So it's interesting and worth looking into. So let me remind you, uh, as we get into that, it's only five verses, and there's really one big takeaway that I want for us today. But I wanna remind us what we've been looking at in the book of Acts so far. If you're new with us, you don't know, but we've been in the book of Acts since Easter of 2021. And uh, we've taken two breaks along the way, but really we've gone verse by verse through the book of Acts since Easter. And, And let me just kind of bring you back up to speed as to what we've seen so far. After the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, he commissions the church, empowers them with his Holy Spirit. The early church is experiencing explosive growth. I mean, it is growing super fast, super rapidly. Literally, they'll preach one sermon and thousands of people will give their lives to Jesus. It's every preacher's dream, right? The new believers, these followers of Jesus are growing in numbers. And an influence. And along the way, they're seeing conversions, but also they're seeing God perform miracle after miracle after miracle, healing miracles, crazy miracles like shadows cast over people and they get healed, um, people being transformed. The local societies are getting better. The cities are improving. The governments are getting better. Local leaders, ruling class from the highest echelon to the lowest. It's just a social lift. How many of you know when the church is doing well, the city gets better? That's what's happening in, in the early church. Church, while, while the church is growing and the church is getting alive and revived, people are getting saved and communities are getting better. By the way, I don't know about you, but I desperately want what happened in the book of Acts, the kind of growth and, and explosive transformational growth, I want that to happen in our world today. Can anybody say amen to that? Does anybody say, I would love to see the kind of revival that happened in the book of Acts happen in Clarksville, in, in Chandler, Arizona, where, where we live? Anybody else besides me? See, I'm a believer that we should all desire what God did then he should do now. The same God that was the God over the church in the book of Acts is the same Lord who is God over LifePoint and over our church as well. Man, people coming to faith, people being cared for, our culture being transformed by the gospel. This is something we should pray for and desire earnestly. But as you look at the book of Acts, there are some takeaways as to how these Christians lived, what they devoted themselves to, how they were focused on the things of God and the relationships within the family of God. And I want to remind you of this because I think these are devotions that we need to make sure that we have as well. And I talk about these as devotions that develop into revival. Whenever you ask a group of Christians, how many of you would love to see revival? Christians are always like, yay. And then you study revival and see what those Christians did to experience revival And many times we don't say, yay, anymore. In fact, if you study the history of revivals in the world, they are always started with deep devotion to prayer, deep devotion to prayer. So if you want revival, but you don't have a prayer life, quit wanting revival. You hear what I'm saying? So so let's look at these devotions that they have. And this is basically at a glance, uh, Acts chapters 1 through 12. These are the things that we see over and over again from Acts chapters 1 through 12. First of all, they lived every day every day of their lives with an intentional devotion to the scriptures. Listen to this. They lived every day with an intentional devotion to scripture. They were devoted. The Bible says in Acts 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching. They were listening to the apostles like Peter, James, and John going, tell me what Jesus said. What did Jesus say about the blind? What did he say about adultery? What did he say about healings? What did he say about the controlling governmental powers? What did Jesus say about heaven? They were devoted to the teachings of the apostles. They were devoted to the Old Testament scriptures, the Psalms and the Proverbs and the the Torah. They were reasoning together. They were living according to the word of God and the teachings of the apostles. Let me ask you this question. Those of you that said, yes, I want revival. Does the Bible lead your life? Does the Bible direct how you think or believe? Now listen, Jesus is Lord of my life, but he's given us his word to direct and to instruct us. In fact, do you carry, this is a question that you need to wrestle with. Do you actually carry a biblical worldview? That is, when you see the craziness of our world, when you watch the chaos of our culture, when you see what's happening around us, does the scripture frame for you how you view our world? Or does culture frame your worldview? Do hashtags and bumper stickers and and trends of our culture and social media realities, does that shape your worldview? Does the Bible inform how you live? We say as a primary doctrine at LifePoint Church, we believe the Bible is the authoritative word of God. Some people want to say, well, you know, the Bible is just written by men. No, that's not true. Listen to me. This is how you articulate this. The Bible was inspired and written by God, but penned by people, by humans. But God wrote the word. God gave us his word. It is the inspired, infallible word of God. Now, listen, we say the Bible is the authoritative word of God and is the authoritative rule for faith and practice. These are the two sides of what we do with the scripture. Faith, what we believe and practice how we live. So does the Bible inform what you believe? We're finding studies that show today that most people don't know their Bible, read their Bible, remember their Bible, which means they don't live by their Bible. What do you believe about salvation? What do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about the afterlife? What do you believe about the, the, the marriage between politics, culture, and faith in Christ? What do you believe about sex, gender, sexuality? Do you believe what's trending and what's politically expedient? Do you believe what the, 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 the celebrities are telling you to believe and what culture tells you? Or do you believe what God's word has to say about those things? Our world is telling us all kinds of craziness about gender and sexual dys, like, dysphoria and, and, and sexual morality and sexual identity and how you can identify yourself and all this craziness about sex and gender and sexuality. Our world says abort anything you don't want. Our world says can all you get and get all you can. Our world is greedy, our world is misogynistic, our world is sexist, our world is murderous, but the Bible says that the people of God are generous, the people of God value life, the people of God value marriage and the covenant between one man and one woman. The Bible says that's what shapes my worldview. So I've gotta ask you that question. Do you have a devotion to, Jesus said, sanctify them by your truth, and then he said your word is the truth. Does the scripture inform your worldview? Does it teach you how to believe? Well, I don't know what to believe about Russia. I don't know what to believe about prayer. I don't know what to believe about healing. Well, the the word of God tells you what to believe. The early church was hungry for God's word. The apostles teaching, not just knowing God, but understanding his heart and will. And that came from time in his word. Listen to me. I'm never impressed when someone says, I've read the Bible. I want to know if you read the Bible. I read a history book in eighth grade. I don't mean I know everything that's in it. I read the owner's manual when I bought my first iPhone. I ain't never read an owner's manual again because they're that easy. I'm not impressed that you've read it. Do you read it? Do you study it? Do you know it? David said, I've hidden your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. When you're having conversation, does the scripture drip out of your mouth? Does the, does the word of God frame how you deal with the crazy of the world? the devotion of the early church, they were every day devoted to the scripture. Second devotion they had was a deep devotion to prayer. They lived every day with an intentional devotion to prayer. Listen, if your prayer life is bedtimes and meals, that ain't a prayer life. Prayer is the invitation of the God of heaven saying, come into my space and come meet with me. Come talk to me. Come listen to me. Come hear from me. I will shut, God shuts down the choruses of angels in order to hear you come and pray. Do you have a confidence that you can come boldly into the throne of grace to receive grace and find mercy in your time of need? Do you believe that God hears you when you pray? Listen, God doesn't need more noise. He wants more of you. God has all the noise that heaven can afford, all the angels singing, holy, holy, holy. And he shuts them all down because he goes, be quiet. My daughter's coming. My son's in the room. What you got going on in your world, boy? You have an invitation with the God of the universe. Have you ever met with someone like famous? Have you ever met with somebody or had an invitation to meet with somebody that you admired and you clear your schedule or you book a flight? Recently, I got to meet with a hero in faith and leadership, and man, I, I spent the money, I got the flat, I reserved the room, I went, I, I was even nervous, like what to wear. You know, have you ever been in one of those meetings, like, do I press my shirt, do I tuck it in, do I leave it out, what do I do? I'm me, but like, I, I wanna be me, but I wanna be me around him, and he's different, you know, like, you just set yourself up. Do you realize none of those meetings even begin to compare to the meeting you have with the king of glory? And the invitation is simple. You don't even have to get yourself right to go there, because Jesus made you right. He made you righteous, and he said, you can come boldly into God's presence. Every single time you pray is a moment to meet with the God of heaven. The Christian's first response was prayer, not last resort. You heard Pastor Jordan say, when they were under pressure, they prayed. When they were in pain, they prayed. Do you have a confidence to pray? Do you know how to pray? Do you desire? This is a question. Do we desire to pray? Or do we just want to post? And do we just want to talk about it? I'm always amazed when people are dwelling in their thoughts. You need to cast those anxieties on the Lord. You ever had somebody tell you, man, you're in my thoughts. I'm thinking of you. Quit thinking about me, you weirdo. Pray for me. (laughs) I need you thinking about me. I know you're going through a lot. You're in my thoughts. Take them thoughts to my heavenly Father and say, hey, are you paying attention to him? I'm preaching now. Do you even know what to pray about? Do you consider it a privilege? Listen, every Tuesday at 9 a.m. we pray as a church. I want to encourage you to put that on your calendar. Get online. If you can't be in the room, come get in the room. Let's build this church more on prayer than ever before. This is the year we're going to pray more. Come on. They had a devotion to prayer. Third, they had intentional devotion to relationships with other believers. You can't do Christianity alone. It's not designed to be that way alone. It's like, it's like being on a bobsled team as the only Bob. It ain't meant to be you by... <laughs> that was a bobsled joke. It, I know there's slalom, solo... Just roll with it, okay? It's like being a one-man basketball team. Yeah, it don't work. You are meant to do Christianity in relationship with other Christians. They were devoted. They were so devoted to life together. It says they met every day. And part of their devoted meetings regularly, twice in Acts chapter 2, it said when they met, they ate, which you know these were some Southerners. Anybody from the South? Y'all know what I'm talking about. Anybody from up North? Yeah, hey, how you doing? Anybody from the... uh, communist area of the West Coast. Anybody from that part of the refugees to, to Tennessee? We're so glad you're here. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm going to teach you a little Southern thing here. Don't ever ask to meet someone in the South without food in mind. You know what I'm saying? Like, don't call me going, hey man, you want to hang out at the park? They got a bistro at the park? What are you talking about? What, did you bring in a sandwich? I mean, we don't hang out with food. <laughs> These are some Southern Christians. They love to eat and meet but they devoted their lives to relationships with other Christians. You know, I've I've been in ministry a long time, 20 years, and I'm telling you, the folks that struggle the most with their faith and faithfulness to their faith are those who do it in isolation. I've done ministry a long time. My wife can tell you the same thing. The couples that struggle the most in their marriage are not in friend groups with other believers. You might say, well, these have been friends of mine since seventh grade. I don't do anything else I used to do in seventh grade. I don't dress like (laughs) I did in seventh grade. I don't do bathroom things, you know, like I don't poo my pants like I did in first grade. Like, I don't know what that has to do with seventh grade. That was, that was too far. That was, that was too far. I didn't do that in seventh grade either, just for the record. Can we delete that out of the podcast? There's a lot of things I don't do like I did when I was a kid, including hang out with childish people. And if I'm going to grow in the things of God, I've got to be devoted to godly relationships. Show me your friends. I'll show you where you're headed, right? I'll show you your future. You need to be in a small group. Don't do Christianity alone. And please, seventh graders, (laughs) get to the bathroom on time. Okay, number four. This is why people love this service right here, because that's the kind of stuff that happens. They lived with intentional devotion to sharing the faith. This is a novel idea. Part of the reason the faith was exploding is because Christians were talking about their faith. They go, have you heard about this Jesus we've been worshiping? And listen, don't just talk about you. Talk about the God you serve. Don't just talk about like you're a better person and oh, you have inner peace because that's not always the way for Christians, right? This life is tough, you know what I'm saying? But you need to tell people that God loved the world so much that even while you were a sinner, he sent his son to die in your place and he rose from the dead for you. That's the gospel, the resurrected Jesus. And then you say, we go to church together. We pray and we worship and we do life together because we follow this risen savior. He's not a dead idol. He's not a, a picture on a wall he is the risen Christ and we serve him faithfully when's the last time you shared your faith recent polls show that most Christians never share their faith including pastors they never share their faith we never tell people here's what we started doing since the 80s we don't share our faith we just share an invite come to my church don't invite someone to church that you've not first invited to Jesus We need to share the faith. They were devoted to talking about Jesus. You know that knucklehead at your job? You know that family member that you can't stand? You know what their greatest need is? It's not a transfer. It's Jesus. They need to be transformed. They need their life changed and wrecked by the gospel. When's the last time you shared the gospel with someone? They lived every day with intentional devotion to crazy generosity. I mean, it was nuts the way they gave there. They weren't stuck with, well, will I have enough? They weren't stuck with the preachers just trying to get my money. They weren't stuck with this church always talks about money. They had an attitude of what's mine is ours. I mean, Christ did everything for me. I'm gonna give everything I can to the kingdom of heaven. Let me give you a little spoiler. You take nothing with you when you die. So nothing you have is actually yours. You own nothing. You want proof? Go Go to the tombs in Egypt. They tried to give all their stuff to the dead when they left and it's all still there. We take nothing with us when we die. So why not have an open hand with it now? My stuff is our stuff. They were selling possessions, cashing it all in so that they could care for the needs of the others. It was not the job of the government to provide the needs for the widow and the orphan. The church looked at generosity as the, the way to care for one another. They tithed, they gave as God directs, and they served generously. The sixth devotion they had is they lived every day with an understanding about suffering and pressure. Now, whenever I talk to Christians about, how many of you want revival? And we go, yeah. How many of you want miracles? Yeah. I go, okay, let's increase our prayer. Okay. Let's read the Bible more. I'm going to get on a plan. Let's spend a small group. I'm going to get there. And then you go, let's be generous. Ooh, man, this is tough. And then you go, let's embrace suffering. Hey, American church, We are so spoiled. Do you realize the fastest growing churches right now in the world are under intense persecution? One of the fastest growing nations for the gospel right now is Iran, where you are at total risk of being martyred with your entire family. Today, you can be martyred for your faith. Coptic Christians were beheaded on video just five years ago for their faith in Jesus. In China, you can Google this, not while your pastor's preaching. Pull it up on YouTube. Chinese house churches arrested. And there are videos, cell phone videos, of Chinese Christians in underground churches in their homes. And the governing officials kicking doors in, arresting pastors and their wives and children and beating Christians for meeting in the name of Jesus. Today. And we think persecution is, they didn't like my post. Like, in our culture, persecution is like, I might not get a promotion. If we want revival, if we want our... We got to risk it all. Go all in, man. We got to be willing to say, man, no matter what happens to me, I exist for a kingdom not of this world, and I will share the gospel, I will share my faith, no matter what it costs me or what it requires of me. For the New Testament Christians, they lived every day, not underground... But bold, going to the temple every day, preaching and reading the word and talking about this resurrected Jesus, they were sharing with one another, knowing they could at any time be imprisoned, beaten, persecuted, stoned, even killed as martyrs. Many of their leaders were martyred, including James, including Stephen, including Peter was going to be killed had it not been for this angel setting him free in last week's text. But we have to, listen, I don't want to suffer, but I'm not afraid to suffer. Jesus said in John 16, in this world, you're going to have problems. And we've tried our best to medicate and put a salve on every discomfort and make everything so comfortable that we don't have any suffering or pressure. When's the last time you gave till you felt it? When's the last time you served and had to give up like a full day with your family or a full day of hobby, like our serve day coming up? We look at that and we go, well, let's see if I'm available instead of no matter what I'm gonna serve. If it costs me something, I gotta call in to work that day. Whatever, I mean, they had a willingness to suffer. Jesus said, in this world you'll have suffering, but take heart, I've overcome this world. Here's what Jesus is saying. This world is gonna have racial pain, sexual misogyny pain, political pain, wars, tornadoes, earthquakes, all the kind of pain of this world. Jesus said, but I've overcome this world. And you come ride with me, and you're going to be an overcomer too. You're going to, su- they'll have suffering down here, but you're not going to suffer forever. You're with me now. You're part of my kingdom. And if I've overcome it and you're with me, you're an overcomer. Can I hear an amen, everybody? So this world doesn't have a grip on them. So so these were the things, the devotions of the New Testament Christians that we've just been seeing. If you read Acts 1 through 12 so far, you're going to see these six devotions over and over again. Devotion to scripture, to prayer, to relationships, to sharing the faith, to crazy generosity and a willingness to suffer. So what does that have to do with Acts 12? Well, that's what we've seen the Christians doing consistently over and over again until we get to this place at the end of Acts 12 when Herod is here, and he's a tyrant. He's an absolute egomaniac tyrant. He's a murderous thug. And as we continue through Acts, we've read about persecution, arrests, Saul, who became the apostle Paul, he's converted, the advancement of the gospel among Gentiles. Peter, the pastor, has been arrested three times. How many of you want a pastor that's got that kind of reputation? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. No, none of you? Oh, thank you. Y'all fired me so quick. First time I got a, you know, orange jumpsuit on. Well, I can't follow a pastor has been to jail. I've only been once. You know, I, anyway, three times. I hate, like, I've been pulled over a few times. I may have rolled through a stop sign in front of the church. And, um, <laughs> and you know, we, Sheriff's Department, we love the police officers, law, law enforcement. We're a good partner. And uh, the guy pulled me over. He's like, aren't you the, I'm like, yes. He goes, here's your ticket. You know, he still gave it to me. <laughs> Anyway, by the end of Acts 12, there's been so many highs and lows going on, and then comes the death of the Judean king, the king of Judah, Judea, Herod. It's an amazing passage. And I got you, I I need you to have some background understanding, because we're going to spend the rest of our time in these five verses, because I wanted you to see kind of what the church was doing when this tragic reality of, of King Herod shows up on the scene, Uh, It's an amazing passage, especially if you're watching the brutality of godless dictatorship like in the world today, right? In fact, I think it's an amazing parallel to what we're seeing happening in Russia. Here's King Herod. He's a brutal king. He murders for sport. He persecutes his neighbors without remorse, and he's deeply entrenched in the building of his own kingdom. He's a bully and a thug, and he's godless. No matter what it costs, he will kill whoever to make his kingdom bigger. Now, Herod was the name given to the kings of Judea at the time. It's a family dynasty. Herod the Great, then Herod Antipas, then now Herod Agrippa is the king that we're talking about here. Now, archaeologists suggest that Herod Agrippa was a practicing Jew. He was a political Jew. Um, He's he's the king of Judea, which is the home of Jerusalem and the, the home of the faith of the Jewish people and this Christian faith. He's the king. And as you read your New Testament, you see multiple Herods throughout the the scripture. The first Herod that you see in the New Testament in the Gospels is Herod the Great. He was the one when Jesus was born, had all the firstborn children killed. You guys remember that in the beginning of the Gospels? So that's Herod the Great. Then he dies and his son, Herod Antipas, becomes the second Herod, who's the one that killed John the Baptist, had his head cut off. And then he was the one that was involved in the death of Jesus. Now his son, Herod Agrippa, is the King Herod of Judea at the time of Stephen or Peter's uh, arrest, he was very political. He was a political animal, he was an opportunist, he was godless. He wanted to build his own kingdom, not God's kingdom. So he's the king of Judea, but he's not after the kingdom of God. He's after the kingdom of Herod. So he was trying to live this balance between life under Roman rule and Jewish ruling parties. So the Pharisees loved Herod. Because they got all their dirty work done through him because he was godless. He didn't care. He was the guy who killed Stephen, had him stoned to death, just killed James, the, the best friend of Jesus, had Peter arrested. Herod's dad was the one who killed Jesus. And the Pharisees knew they had an end with Herod, the king of Judea, that he was corrupt and they could do him, get him to do his bidding, their bidding. So why is that important? Because Herod was a threat to this young church that's springing up. Why was he a threat to them? Because they were a threat to his power. See, the church is growing. It's a group that's growing with influence, it's growing with prominence, and it's growing with the miraculous, and the Christians are devoted to prayer, not to Herod. They're devoted to generosity, not more taxes. They're devoted to caring for one another, not depending on the government. They're devoted to worshiping God and not worshiping idols like Caesar, or, we'll see in a minute, Herod. The church was a threat to his establishment, so he turned around and became a threat to them. In fact, he was one of the greatest threats of persecution in cahoots with the Jewish ruling party. So for the rest of the message, I want you to understand something. God will not share his throne. Herod is the king of Judea, Jerusalem, the king of the Jewish people, the king of their, their uh, nation. But God will not share his throne. So watch what happens. What happens? Reminding you of where we've come. Church is growing, all these things, these devotions. Then James is killed by Herod. James is the one of the three best friends of Jesus, Peter, James, and John, the sons of Zebedee, right? James is killed by Herod at the beginning of chapter 12. Peter is arrested, thrown in chains, in prison, set between two sentries, two guards, and he's asleep. Now remember this text from last week, Pastor Jordan crushed it in the message. Peter was asleep because he had a word from God He's going to live until he can't get dressed anymore. You remember that? That was pretty amazing. Well, then Peter's woken up by an angel because the Christians are praying. They pray him out of bondage. And an angel wakes him up, and he walks out of prison. He walks out of town. And Peter dips. Like, he doesn't hang around for Herod to see him. Be like, hey, I'm out here. Just if you need to re-arrest me, he leaves. Smart. When verse 18, it says, so when daytime had come, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. In other words, they're freaking out going, where's Peter? What happened? What, who got him out of here? Who let him out? And then afterwards, Herod, this is Herod Antipas, Herod, excuse me, Agrippa, Herod comes down searching for Peter himself because he wants to kill him and he can't find him either. So Herod is, he's furious. So he examines the soldiers, the sentries that were ordered to guard Peter. And because they lost him, he kills him. That's how brutal Herod was. He's not like, go find him. He's like, I'm going to kill you and get somebody else to go find him. So he kills the two centuries and he orders that they should be put to death. Then he goes down from Judea to Caesarea and he spends some time there. Now this brings me to the point of today's text. It's a long intro, but we're almost done actually. Those six points are something we need to pray about growing in devotion to, but I'm almost done. So verse 20 says, now Herod was angry. He was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Now, Tyre and Sidon are neighboring nations. So I just want you to see the scene and put it in context of world events and just go, God gave us a word for today, okay? We planned this text in October, by the way, for today. Herod is the king of Judea. He's an egomaniac. He's a bully. He's a murderer. He's a thug. And he's losing his mind and his power to the church. So he starts bullying his neighboring countries. And he's imposing on them. Look what he says. He was mad, so he starts angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. So they send an entourage to him. They send people to him with one accord, and they have... They have persuaded Blastus, who's King Herod's chamberlain, they asked for peace. Why? Because their country, Tyre and Sidon, depended on the king's country for food. So they were dependent on Judea, and they needed, they needed Herod, and they needed the supplies of food and maybe energy and gas or whatever. <laughs> Are y'all seeing this text? Yes. God gave us this plan for today. It's crazy. So verse 21 says, so on an appointed time, day... Herod puts on his robes, his royal robes, and he takes a seat on the throne of Judea. This is Jerusalem, the throne of the Jewish people, right? The king of the Jewish, the Judeans. And he sits on his throne, and it says he gave a speech. He delivers an oration to them. We don't know what he says. And the people started shouting, the voice of a God, not a man, the voice of a God. This is really significant because never in the history of the kings of Israel did a king think, I'm God, until here when they start saying, you're God, you're God, man, you're just like God. You are the, this is not the voice of a man, it's the voice of God on the throne of Judea where God's people live, where God's church is being built. Oh, no, 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 no. Y'all heard that meme? Well, no, 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 no. The people start saying, the voice of a God and not a man. And immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give, he didn't repel it. He didn't go, no, 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 I'm not God. He just, yeah, this feels good. He did not give God glory. And look how gross this is and he was eaten by worms. (laughs) This feels like some Old Testament stuff. And I read a passage like this and I'm like, I mean, I studied over this text a bunch this week for this message going, how am I gonna preach this? And I don't wanna make, you know, how do I preach this for today? And so I had some other reflections. I started prepping a message. And the questions that I get asked a lot in, in times of tension, you know, people wanna know like, How do we as Christians react when there's wicked, ungodly leaders in the world? Dictators, evil leaders. And I I just want to point out a couple thoughts, and then I want to get back into the text, and then we'll close, I promise. Um, First of all, where are the Christians in this scene? Okay, where have they been for 12 chapters? Praying. You want to know where the Christians are? You go, where's the Christians picketing and, and rattling the... you know, hashtagging this thing and calling them out. No, no, they're too busy praying. And, and listen to me, Christians should always pray for leaders. Now you should pray for the leaders you like and the leaders that you don't like. You should pray for the leaders you elected and you should pray for the leaders that are evil. They're different prayers though. For the ones that are doing great, Those that are walking in integrity and character and humility and serving people, good leaders lead to serve others. They're not, bad leaders serve, have others serve them. Good leaders serve people. And for good leaders and godly leaders, you pray blessing and wisdom, anointing and favor and humility over them. And you pray the blessing of God and the favor of God. For evil and wicked leaders, look at me, I'm going to tell you exactly how I pray. Pray that God take them out. Pray that God expose their sin. That's exactly what happened here. Herod didn't say, I'm God, but God allowed this exposure of his heart to think he's God, and the people call him God, and he not give glory. God allowed that exposure, and the Lord took him out. Why do I think this happened? Let me tell you something. Remember those disciples? Remember, not a real word. Remember those disciples? In the beginning of this chapter, when Peter was in prison, what were the Christians doing? Praying. I believe the prayers of the Christians busted Peter out of prison and exposed Herod's idolatry. Yeah. Yeah. Those Christians never stopped praying. They're praying, God, deliver our Peter. God, get that guy out of here. Lord, set him free. God, get him get, set us free from that tyrant. Yeah. And they may have never seen the fruit. They probably weren't in the meeting when he busted out into a box of maggots. You know what I'm saying? Like, that is so gross. <laughs> he just exploded into a pile of worms. They probably never saw the fruit of their prayers. It doesn't mean God didn't answer their prayers. Christians must pray for leaders. They were praying for their pastor, they were praying for their king. They are praying God set our pastor free and God set us free from that tyrant. Let me tell you something. Every one of you should pray for leaders. Pray for presidents and kings and rulers in high places that we may live peaceable in, the light, in, in this world. You should pray that those who lead well do it better and with more anointing. You should also pray for evil men and women to be exposed and to be removed. I'm talking about presidents. I'm talking about dictators. I'm talking about pastors that are evil and sharking people for their money and sexual immorality. You should pray that that stuff be exposed. If you're an abusive father, if you're an abusive mom, I pray that you be exposed and you be set out of that house in Jesus' name. We should pray for leaders that the godly would be anointed and be used of God and that wicked leaders should be exposed and removed by God. Absolutely pray for leaders. But it's different prayers. The second thing you notice about Christians is they're busy uh, feeding the poor and the hungry and taking care of needs. What they're not trying to do is hug up next to Herod, trying to get their place in the political spectrum. Are you kidding me? This guy's gonna come and go. The kingdom of God will last forever. The Christians are busy taking care of the needs of other people, sharing their resources, feeding the hungry, caring for the widow and the orphan. Christians, by the way, where, you know, like how do we respond as Christians when evil dictators are in power? Uh, Trust God to take them out. Jesus said, you need to pray this way. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. You need to ask God, listen to me, ask God to avenge evil from this world. I'm talking if it's an evil boss that's lying on you and causing your world to be upside down, if it's an abusive parent or spouse, if it's a a pastor that's a charlatan that you've been involved with, if it's a, a political tyrant, pray and believe God, Lord, avenge your people. God, remove evil. Let me give you a little history lesson of how God removes evil leaders. Um, Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, Ahab and Jezebel, Herod, worms, (laughs) Caesar, Hitler, Stalin, Hussein, Bin Laden. Pray that God remove evil. Church, don't post about it if you ain't prayed about it. Pray, 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 pray. And by the way, a question that often comes up, people go, where's God? Where was God in World War II, Krakow and Poland and Warsaw? Where was God when Hitler reigned? Where's God in Ukraine right now? Where was God in Jim Crow days of American history? Where was God in the transcontinental slave trade? And if we're not careful, we hold God accountable like he somehow wasn't God. I think we need to Maybe pause asking where's God and start asking where's the church? Yes. Like where was the church during transcontinental slave trade in America? Where was the church during Jim Crow laws? Where's the church during misogyny today? Where's the church in Ukraine? Where's the church in Russia? Where was the church in Warsaw, in Poland, in World War II? Where's the body of Christ? Because we are ambassadors of the gospel. Jesus has given us his spirit. Some of us are saying, Lord, come down here and fix it. And I feel like God goes, I already came down and fixed it, and I gave you my spirit, so you go fix it. Where's the church? That's the loudest I got all day. Am I shouting? I mean, for real. Where are we in prayer, in serving, in compassion, in love, in forgiveness? Where's the church? Where's the church when marriages are falling apart? Where's the church when there's abuse at home? Where's the church when people fail? Where's the church when people are suffering? I heard a story this week of a, today of a family who lost everything in a fire two weeks ago just down the street, and one of our pastors was driving by when it happened. You know what he didn't do? I better call somebody. I got to get to my thing. He pulled over, and he got out, and he helped. Where's the church? We run into pain. We run into pressure. We're in Ukraine. That's why I tell you keep giving because we're in Poland. We're in Ukraine. We're doing the work in Russia, somebody. Come on. So, so when evil people persist, it should not be a question of where is God. The question should be, where is the church? You know how to get evil people out of power? Get them saved or get them arrested or give them some worms. I mean. That's the most baller way to kill somebody I've seen in the Bible. That's God just being God. You know what I'm saying? That's Bruce Almighty God just flexing. (laughs) Can you imagine the news? Like if we were in a 24-hour news cycle world and that happened, this just ended today from Judea. King of Judea, Herod, burst into a box full of maggot worms. It's disgusting down here, Jake. Back to you. (laughs) In other news, Kim Kardashian just, you know, whatever, so... <laughs> I don't know why that was so random. So come back to the text about Herod, because i got to end this sermon. Church, listen, we have a divine assignment. In times of pressure and pain, we don't go dormant, we don't go silent, we engage. But if we want to see revival hit the world, if we want to see continents change and nations transform, the church has to come alive and be the church. We need to be devoted to prayer and scripture and generosity and faithful serving and caring for the poor and the needy. We need to be devoted to a willingness to suffer and to go through some stuff for the sake of the gospel of Jesus. Share your faith. Tell others about the Lord. That's the only hope this world has. I do not trust any government to fix our broken world. None of them. Are you kidding me? If you're relying on that left side, right side, middle, side, I don't. You're you're putting your hope in something so false. So what about Herod? The locals are dependent on Herod. Tyre and Sidon. They don't want a war with him. He's saber rattling. He's a bully and a threat. And here's the part I want you to pay attention to: when Herod, in his fury, he's mad. He's in wrath and he's clearly in the middle of an egomaniac meltdown. He sits on the throne of Judea. He gives a speech to the people, and they begin to say, you're God. You're not human. And notice the text says, he did not give God the glory. He didn't give God glory. Remember, Herod was a political ruler of the Jews, among the Jews in Judea. And even though he was a cruel punk, until now he had never thought himself to be God. But God won't share his throne with anybody. That's what Romans do, that's what pagans do. Caesar thinks he's God, but he's not of the people of God. That's what pagans do, that's what Romans do, but not the Jewish people, not Jewish kings. And as soon as he began to hear it and believe that he himself was God in Judea, the homeland of God's people, God took him out. Why? Because it's 100% against the first standard of following God. You remember your Bible, Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments? The very first one, God says it like this I am the Lord, your God. I'm God, not you. I'm God. I'm your Lord. Look, no, so he says, I'm your Lord. That means king, ruler, master, boss. I'm the Lord God who brought you out of Egypt, brought you out of slavery. And then look at the first commandment. Number one, you shall have no other gods. And for the first time, the king of Judea says, I'm God. <laughs> I feel like the Lord's like... <laughs> Oh, no, you ain't. You ever just like let your kids know something real quick? God wasted no time. He didn't let it sit for a month. He didn't let it brew. He didn't have a meeting about it. God immediately said, no, worm food. Because God will not share his throne with anyone. Now look at me, because I got to finish. I feel like I've said that a lot. God will not share his throne with you, either. He won't share his throne with an idol, with a way of thinking or living, or some other crazy devotion that you have. God still desires that he rule in your life, that he is the Lord of every one of you and every part of you, that he is the Lord of his church, and he is the Lord of your whole life. I believe it's God's will that every person on the planet come to a saving knowledge and a real relationship with Jesus Christ, not only as Savior. Everybody loves Jesus, the Savior. Take me to heaven, yes. But all of us struggle with Jesus as Lord, as boss, as God of our lives. And I'm telling you something. He wants to be the the Savior and the Lord. And it's always been God's desires. No king, no ruler, no dictator, no president, no pastor. No one gets to change the heart of God. And no one gets to become a God either. While it seems really strong what happened to Herod, and very crazy, it's the only time in the Bible, in the New Testament, we see this kind of action from God. I want you to understand something. Every person on earth has the same fate of Herod if we don't surrender to Christ as the Lord of every part of our lives. We have the same fate of eternal separation from God, eternal death, if Jesus is not the Lord of our lives. The Bible tells us clearly you <laughs> No one comes to God except through relationship and devotion and faith in Jesus Christ. Recent surveys suggest that up to 60% of evangelical church-attending Christians actually believe that you can get to heaven, you can get to eternal life apart from a faith in Jesus. Look at me. That is a lie from the pit of hell. There is no way to get to God except through the single, only, hard way of knowing Jesus Christ and His crucified you will never get to god through good works through islam through mormonism through some other crazy faith you will never get to god apart from the finished work of jesus christ and your full dependence your full faith and your surrender to the lordship of christ in your life jesus said broad and easy is the way that leads to destruction Narrow and hard is the way that leads to eternal life. Here's what's narrow about it. It's only Jesus. Here's what's hard. He did all the heavy lifting for you. Now here's why I bring that up. Because I know, you think, well, I'm not Herod. I don't have a crown and a throne and a, and a, a robe to sit out and give an oration. Oh yeah, you do. And I do. See, every day I have those little messages kicking back to Mike going, you're doing pretty good." Man, you, you're like the God of your own life. You can be God of your finances or your secret life or your sex life or you can be God of your beliefs in this area but you know, let Jesus save you but you rule you. And every day I'm tempted to be the God of my life again. Every day like Herod, I'm tempted to believe the lie that I don't need to give God glory because I'm managing all this pretty good on my own. Every day I'm tempted like Eve in the garden. When you eat this fruit, you'll be just like God. Every day I'm tempted to tell God, if you'll take care of my afterlife, I'll take care of this life. But look at me, God will not share His throne with anybody, not even you. So the question is, and you know it's pretty gross, the worms, but go back to your Gospels. Jesus said, those who reject the Lord will spend eternity away from him in a place called hell. Listen, here's what he said, with a heat that's never extinguished, in a darkness that's never lit up, and with worms that never die. I watched that story of Herod and I go, that's gross. That's awful. But in the grand scheme of the human experience, It's just one more time that someone rejects God and gets what they asked for. So I got to ask you, is Jesus only seated on the throne of your life? Is Jesus truly the God of your whole life? And here's the thing as a church, we've committed that our mission is to lead you every time we gather, every time we do a small group, every song we sing, everything we do here with kids and students and parking teams, everything is helping lead you to be devoted more to the Lordship of Jesus. But as soon as we stop giving God the glory and start believing, I'm gonna be the God of my own life, I'm gonna do it my way, we run the risk of an eternity away from God. This is why every week I lead you back into prayer. God, I'm all in. I confess my sin. I'm yours again today. I'm reestablishing my commitment. The heart of God is still to be king on the throne, but it's not a throne in Judea. It's not a throne in Israel. In fact, the the dynasty of the Herods died, but the dynasty of the kingdom of God lives on in the lives of people. And the throne that Christ wants to sit on is the throne of your heart. So the question I have to ask you, is Jesus the king of your whole life? Does he have your whole heart, your whole soul, your whole mind, your whole strength? Have you truly given your whole self to the Lordship of Jesus? There is no other way to have eternal life. By the way, just so you finish the text, for all of you OCD people that are like, he's got two more verses. (laughs) Um, All that terrible thing happens with Herod, but the word of God increased and multiplied. I just want you to know, like that didn't slow God down at all. As chaotic as it is in Russia and Poland, the word of God will increase and multiply. As crazy as it might get financially and in the economic meltdowns and all the craziness of you, gas prices and everything, but the word of God increases and multiplies. You know why? Because the devotion of those Christians did not shake at all. Still devoted to prayer, scripture, to fellowship, to sharing the gospel, to giving generously and to a life willing to suffer and to be persecuted. The word of God increased. Nothing will stop the advancement of the gospel of the kingdom of God. Can I hear a big amen, everybody? (laughs) Nothing will stop it. The gospel of Jesus, the mission of God to save the world will continue to increase, but it has to start with people who are surrendered to the lordship of Jesus. And that's my question for you today. If there is any part of your life that's shadow from the Lord, he sees it. And he wants to have mastery of that area. Do you have a biblical worldview? Are you willing to let Scripture lead your way? Are you willing to let God have mastery over all of your life? If so, just pray this with me, and if not, I'm praying for you. Keep coming, I'm gonna keep asking. I'm gonna ask everybody to pray with me in just a moment. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the story of the book of the Acts, of the church in Acts, and God, what you're doing in them and through them. And Lord, may we be a church known for those same devotions as those Christians in Jerusalem, Judea, and the other parts of the known world at the time. That we, God, would be devoted to prayer and scripture and devoted to fellowship and generosity, devoted God to sharing the gospel, devoted to a willingness to suffer and be persecuted for the sake of this gospel, Lord. May we never become so comfortable that it cost us nothing to serve God. And Lord Jesus, may we take the story of Herod as a stark reminder. That, Lord, you will never share your throne with anybody. That, God, though we try to rule our own lives, you will be the Lord of all. God, I pray that anyone that's here listening to this message, watching it on live stream or on demand, that's hearing this sermon and wondering, have I given all to Christ? Let's just reaffirm that right now. God, maybe we've struggled, we, we've said yes to eternal life, but not this life, and we, we really need to give our, our, our whole life to you today. I pray, God, that today would be that day that we just go for it all in, no regrets, in Jesus' name. Would you just pray this with me, everyone in the church? Just say, God, I believe in Jesus. Come on, say, can you open your hands to the Lord? Say, God, I believe in Jesus, that he died for my sin, so that I can live my life completely, devoted to Jesus. Say, Lord, I confess my fault. I repent of trying to be my own God. I, I surrender to you. I'm all in to the glory of God forevermore, in Jesus' name. Say, God, I receive your forgiveness. I accept your salvation. I'm all in, I'm all yours forever, in Jesus' name, to God be the glory. Come on, somebody say amen.